Good morning, all. Am I, am I live here? All right. Good morning. Are you alive? <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's great to, to be back. Great to be back um, uh, here. As uh, some of you may remember, uh, uh, it was about four years ago I was here, so it's, it's a, treat to, a treat to be back. You know, I was um, uh, uh, speaking in Stockton, California, uh, uh, a couple years ago at a, at a prayer breakfast, and they have a long tradition there, and this isn't the crazy part of California, this is the sort of the earthy part of California, um, and, and it had been, this prayer breakfast had been going on for some 30-odd years, and they had invited me very graciously to be the, the speaker that morning, um, and so I came, and it was packed, at about 600 people, it was amazing, uh, and that night when I checked my emails, I got an email from someone who said, uh, Dear Dr. Miller, I owe you an apology. <laughs> well, that's odd. I don't know this person. Never heard of him in my life. And he said, uh, I have been going to this prayer breakfast for 30 years, and when I heard that someone from the Northeast, <laughs> from Yale, no less, was coming to address us, I said to myself, has anything good ever come out of New Haven? <laughs> It's one of the more unique paraphrasings of uh, John that I've ever seen, and uh, it was very, very kind of him. Well, hopefully that you won't go away with that same question about about Princeton today, that maybe there'll be a thought or two I'll share, which will encourage you uh, and and inspire you, Um, and frankly, uh, help you along this great journey that Tom and your whole team have have, uh, led you on, or that you've led them on. It's probably been both directions. When I hear David, you speak, uh, it's powerful. Uh, you know, a lot of times I'll go talk to an organization, and, uh, and I know that well, I've thought a lot about this, and, and maybe there's something that I can contribute to help them along, but I'm quickly thinking, I'm not going to help you at all. Maybe just encourage you. The, I mean, just this, this pulpit that you've had for the past six weeks <laughs> blows me away. That's a theological term. Did you know that? To be blown away? Um, <laughs> This is extraordinary. I've already got a picture of it, and I'm going to be telling stories now all over the country, indeed all over the world, about this pulpit and this place and you people. I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> so uh, do you mind indulging me if I open with a, a, word, a word of prayer? Gracious and loving God, building God, creating God, Architect God, visionary God, planting God, weeding God, fertilizing God, healing God, who sent your Son that we would come to know you more dearly and nearly, to have eternal life through him. And that he, in turn, would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to guide us and always point us back to you. May this session today be transformative in the particular way you want for every particular person who's here. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, uh, 
you know, I don't know if I mentioned this last time I was here, but I have some roots in this area. My uh, great, uh, my grandmother, uh, Helen Naomi Wilson, as you can see from the slide, uh, was uh, born in Kansas and, and went, to, uh, went to college uh, nearby. Uh, she is the opera singer, third from the right. Uh, they're really a bold thing for a woman of, of her day. Uh, and when I knew her as a kid growing up, I never had this, this image of her as a young, vibrant uh, professional. So it's extraordinary. So I do feel a sense of coming home here. Uh, uh, it's, it's great to be back. By the way, my mom just uh, emailed me these, these uh, slides. Uh, so isn't it great? My mom is 70, uh, 78, and look at her on the internet. Not bad, huh? So, uh, and of course, you'll recall, uh, uh, it was a joy to be here with uh, Ravi in the conference you had some uh, four years ago, and that's the panel session with uh, some uh, good laughter and good-spirited questions that you all asked, and, and I'm sure uh, Michael will have a chance to continue that great tradition today, and, and, uh, and Catherine. Well, uh, I have a liturgical thing I do. Uh, I, I lead a group in Greenwich called the Greenwich Leadership Forum. I'll talk about them later. And I did this once, and they, they, they don't let me not do it. Is, is that a double negative? I'm forced to do it every time now. And here's, here's what my whole world is about, and I hope your whole world. The question so many people face in the marketplace is there's two Bibles. There's this one Bible that we, that we, we follow on Sunday from 11 to 12 a.m., and then there's this other Bible... <laughs> that we follow Monday through Friday. And of course, it begs the question, which is the real one? There's the Bible, the, the, the rules of the road for the workplace, and then there's the Bible, the rules of the road for our lives. And I would argue these should not be two separate documents, two separate Bibles. And of course, there's only one Bible. But that this Bible, in fact, if you look at it through the lens, through the hermeneutic, through the framework of the marketplace, you will be stunned, as you have been no doubt studying these past five years, at how much it has to offer and say about life in the marketplace. Jesus announces the kingdom of God from a factory floor, not from a pulpit. And I suggest that while we don't want to view this book as some simplistic little uh, playbook, the reality is it's the train tracks, it's the parameters, it's the framework through how we conduct ourselves in the workplace, and indeed how we find meaning and purpose in our lives in the workplace, just as the video just showed from one of your congregational members. I'll set this here just as a visual reminder of what we're about and hopefully what our faith is about and what this conference is about. But it is important, by the way, you'll notice which way I wrapped these two. You don't want the Wall Street Journal wrapped around the Bible. Uh, the overall arching umbrella ought to, be, ought to be the Word of God. Well, what are we going to do today? <laughs> I found, by the way, and I don't know, Michael, if you find this at Oxford at all these highfalutin places, that cartoons are a lot better than other things. So uh, my students appreciate it, it seems. Uh, this, is, this, is what we'll, uh, this is what we'll be doing. First, I'm going to talk a bit about the faith at work movement to let you know you're part of something. In fact, I would argue you're at the forefront of it. Uh, and it's a, it's a national movement that meets the criteria, uh, indeed an international movement, of being a bona fide social movement, not some fad or flash in the pan. Uh, I know it was sort of a quick turn of the phrase, uh, uh, Tom, when you, when you mentioned it, but I don't see this as the culmination of five years. I see this as, as a benchmark in a lifetime of ministry, that churches that pay attention to faith at work, it shouldn't just be a program or a one-off deal. 
It should be a way of life, a way of being, that when we go into the marketplace, for those of you, and by the way, my comments will focus mostly on paid work, work outside of the home, and of course we all know that homemakers, volunteer workers, retirees, people that work for foundations, that's work too, to be sure, and let's always honor and dignify that in the same breath. I'll be focusing primarily, however, on paid work, but you'll find analogs, I hope, for those of you who are stay-at-home moms, or a couple of you might be stay-at-home dads, or at retired stages of your life, that still work matters to God, as uh, the woman in the video said. So we'll talk a bit about the faith at work movement. Uh, who's noticed? Are there any implications? Does it matter? What's the big deal? Uh, and then lastly, to set up a framework that uh, I think you've had some exposure to uh, of, of how do people actually go about integrating faith and work. How do you do this? It's fine to hear it from the pulpit. I guess it's a pulpit, right? It's fine to hear this from up front, but how do you do it in the real world? And, I, and I'd like to give you a framework, some handholds, and I think that will form the, the rubric or the backdrop of much of the day of some of the things, some of the things you'll, you'll hear as we go forward. So uh, let me get a little more comfortable if you don't mind. Seeing as I'm in the office now, I'll take my jacket off. There we go. Well, uh, you know, to put this uh, uh, in perspective, um, uh, let me just start with, you know, how did I get into this crazy business? If you had told me a few years ago I would be talking about God in a public setting, I would say you're smoking something illegal. Uh, I, I grew up in the Northeast. We don't do God there. We don't talk about God. <laughs> uh, we think about God, and you might be surprised to know there are a lot of Christians there, too. But we don't talk about it publicly. It's more of an internalized part of our faith. Here's my growing up story. That's my, uh, my dad on the right, my mom on the left in the, in, the, in the big photo there, and my older brother standing up, and I'm a little tot in my mom's arms. Here was my uh, Sunday morning growing up experience. My father, uh, who was Mensa, genius, smart, off the charts, smart, had no time for organized religion. He had no time for organized religion. He was so smart that he could out-argue anyone except maybe Michael and Robbie. And he was angry at the church. He had no time for it. What about all the hypocrites that he saw? What about other religions? What about good people who don't have a relationship with Jesus? Is God going to condemn them to hell too? He had a lot of, frankly, fair, good questions. He was also an engineer. He was a scientist, a research scientist. My mom, on the other hand, was a, a wonderful, pious, devout Methodist churchwoman. And she has, uh, even to this day, what I would call a simple faith. And I say it with the deepest of respect, the deepest of respect, that her, while she thinks from time to time about some of the hard questions like my father, she didn't, they, didn't, they were not obstacles to her faith. She, in fact, like Jesus, talked about the pure, beautiful faith of a child, and my mom gets it. So here's my Sunday morning, my older brother and me being dressed up in our Sunday finery. That's back when you used to get dressed up to go to church. And we would, mom would schlep us off to church, uh, schlep being the operative word, because we didn't really want to go. Dad had the better deal. He was staying at home in his recliner chair, reading the Sunday New York Times, which, as you may know, is about this thick, understanding and memorizing every single thing in that paper, and listening to loud classical music in the background. And meanwhile, we got schlepped off to church. So who was right? Who was right? All kids ask that question. Who's right, mom or dad? Faith, reason, the sacred, the secular. Acceptance of revealed teachings versus skepticism about revealed teachings. Who was right? Much of my life has been spent answering that question. And in a way, 
they were both right. Well, mom was more right than dad. But dad was right in as much as the hard questions he had, the God I believe in doesn't need to be afraid of hard questions. And I don't need to be worried about protecting God. And every year I get a little bit more experienced, a little bit smarter. I remember John Stott once answering a question over in London saying, well, that's a very good question. When I was younger, I had that question too. <laughs> and every year, God will reveal a few more things to us. But we don't need to be afraid of the tough questions. Our God is big enough to handle all of that. So my mom was more right than my dad, but this is what shaped me and my passion of holding together, therefore, faith and work, holding together Sunday and Monday. Well, let me talk about this word, avada. You may have noticed it on the front. Uh, has anyone here ever had Hebrew lessons in your free time? Well, I had the pleasure of slogging through biblical Greek and Hebrew uh, in my seminary days, and I tend not to get an epiphany too often. Uh, I don't get emails from God very frequently, uh, but, but this is one that I got, uh, that the word avodah, or its root, avodah, or aboda, based on how you pronounce it, means three different things in the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll find it is translated to me three different ways. One way it's translated to mean is just work, like working at a job, uh, being an architect, being a data entry clerk, working in a field, being a laborer, being a CEO, being a sales rep, work, working in the fields. The second way it's translated in the Old Testament is to mean worship, as in worshiping Yahweh, worshiping the King of Kings. And the third way the same root word is translated is to mean service. Do you remember that great passage in Joshua after Joshua? Um, he knows he's at the end of his life. He's taking stock and has one more chance to try to teach everyone, remember the story, here's what God did for you. And then he concludes, choose ye today whom ye will serve. That's avodah. So this one word, for me, I went, click, that's it. That's what my life is about. How can my work be a form of honoring and worshiping God while serving neighbor? That work is the vortex, work is the crucible, work is the place that we could do both, where we can honor God in and through our work, both what we do and how we do it, as well as to serve neighbor. My theology of the church, my ecclesiology, the ten-cent word, and we were talking a bit about this last night, is that, um, uh, and I always get in trouble when I say this to pastors, but that church is, is not about Sunday. I mean, it's, Sunday's important, it's necessary, it's required because we need to come together as a gathered community to worship God. But really, church is about Monday. It's about what we do when we go out Monday. Do we shut down and compartmentalize that part of our life, of everything we just heard on Sunday, or does it shape and inform and influence everything we do Monday through Friday? Well, I would argue it's the latter. And there's this beautiful movement that a healthy Christian church has of gathering and scattering, being the gathered people, the scattered people, coming in and out, in and out of horizon with that. Well, uh, uh, what got me to this avada, the kind biographical words that, that, that David said, I spent uh, eight years with IBM in the Northeast and, and loving and thriving that. Then I had an opportunity much bigger than I deserved to uh, go be a, uh, uh, an executive uh, running a, an American bank over in London, their European operation. And then uh, the, the Cl British Clearing Bank uh, recruited me to do a turnaround uh, for an ailing division. And when HSBC acquired it, I became then the, the senior executive for their whole uh, global securities business. Uh, and I really felt that was my calling. That was my calling. Uh, that I was meant to be salt and light and a different kind of business leader. 
in the last couple of years uh, that we were in London, I was a partner in a small private, private equity bank um, uh, doing cross-border mergers and acquisitions and, and uh, uh, investment uh, kind of work. And through that, it was in our London years when our faith exploded, when it, we went from being, um, uh, oh, you might say cultural Christians uh, to being people, my wife and I, Karen, uh, uh, to really having our faith be the central and driving force in our life. And that happened through the, the powerful ministry of uh, John Stott. Some of you may know uh, John Stott, uh, now near the end of his life, uh, and he's one of the most extraordinary figures in modern Christian history. Uh, we didn't know who he was when we uh, stumbled through those church doors one day at All Souls Church at Langham Place in London. Uh, we were assigned to uh, a fellowship group, and guess whose group we were assigned to? John Stotts. So Uncle John has shaped and influenced my theology and my thinking uh, and has been a great encourager of this uh, crazy work I do of trying to bridge the world of the academic community, the uh, marketplace, uh, and the church world. Well, what do we do with all that? So, uh, uh, well, just as an aside, the, the transition piece, uh, I got on the wrong plane one day from Heathrow. I thought I was flying to Zurich and I ended up at seminary. I don't know how that happened. Uh, <laughs> But uh, though I, I won't bore you with the details, but uh, I went through a slow, gradual discernment process that I was being uh, called into a new direction. And, and I want to stress hard enough, my mom, bless her, she'll, she'll say, well, my, my boy has been called to ministry. I go, well, no, mom, I was called to ministry before. I was called to ministry. I just happened to be an executive. Now it's a different kind of ministry. It's a new calling. And I came to discern this calling. It was a gradual, slow process. It took about 18 months. It wasn't some crisis. I couldn't have been happier in my life, making more money than I know what to do with, personal fulfillment in my career. I sensed I was making a positive difference in the world. My wife was a, law, uh, a lawyer and a law professor. Life was good for us. So it was slightly disruptive when, when uh, God said, well, no, I've got a new track I want you to, uh, to go on and to move back to the States and study theology, which is what I did for a few years at, at Princeton. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll tell one, one little aside. Remember I said I don't do God publicly too well? Well, uh, here I am at the partners meeting uh, to announce my uh, resignation. And, of course, the English don't do church, uh, let alone God, so it's sort of fun. <laughs> and the senior partner, I was a junior partner, the senior partner says, uh, new business. And I raised my hand. He said, yeah, well, what's that, Miller? And I said, well, I've received this calling from God, and I mumble, and, and, and I'm going to have to have to leave. He said, what's that? Speak up, pipe up. And I said, well, I've received a calling from God. I've discerned this calling that I need to go study theology. I don't want to, but I'm, I'm meant to do this. So I'm going to tender my shares back to the firm and head back to the States. Without skipping a beat, my friend Joel, who is Jewish as it happens, and he and I traveled around the world late at night talking about things. What do you guys believe? What do you guys believe? And sharing our respective traditions. Uh, and Joel said, without skipping a beat, hasn't God ever heard of call waiting? <laughs> 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 no, Joel, not a good idea. So, so when God calls, you got to step to it. So anyway, uh, off my wife and I went back to the States. And it was while I was at Princeton Seminary, and I love that place. Gosh, they're great folks there. But, but they didn't ask the question I was asking. They weren't asking who's right, my mom or my dad. They just assumed my mom was right. And they didn't have a lot of time for my father's questions or my father's world or your world or my old world. They thought I was some sort of, uh, that I was coming to make amends for this egregious life I'd lived as a capitalist pig. <laughs> I mean, really, one guy, I won't mention his name, he was giving a lecture on uh, cultural hermeneutics, uh, which was a very good uh, uh, course to take. And then he, at, the, at the apex of this marvelous rhetorical flourish, he referred to uh, the uh, global businesses, guys like me, as being the beast, as in the book of Revelations. <laughs> 
Now, one advantage of being an older student, a second career student, is you don't really care about your grades. <laughs> so I said to him, I, said, I couldn't take it any longer. So, Professor, you know not of what you speak. <laughs> I am the beast. <laughs> and we had a very interesting exchange after that, as you might imagine. But I said, no, that's unfair. That's a simplistic view of the world. The corporate world, of course, has fallen. But last I looked, being a good Calvinist, a good Presbyterian, the doctrine of sin is rather democratically spread around the population. (laughs) And guess what? The church has fallen too. And so is the government, and so is the Red Cross, and so is Habitat for Humanity. Go through them all. Every organization has fallen. So long as it's comprised of human beings like you and me, they're fallen. Now, yes, they're redeemable, sanctifiable, uh, uh, but, but they, they are fallen. And the business world is no different than that. In fact, I, I get in trouble for saying this, but I have worshipped, I have worked in some companies for some companies that are more holy than churches I have worshipped in. I worshipped once in my wife and I at a church that was toxic. I mean, if you're a Frank Peretti fan, there's probably little gargoyles up looking down at us. And, and, uh, uh, I mean, that's not really my way of worldview, but nonetheless, it felt like it. And I've worked for companies that were doing righteous, good things, taking care of their people, uh, uh, offering good products for the world at decent prices, and helping truly lift up the world's uh, uh, quality of life. I've worked for places like that, and many of you do, I suspect, as well. So the marketplace is is not the beast. It's another part of God's creation that we need to, I think, as Christians, be the salt, to be the light, to preserve, to sting, and to make better for ourselves and our neighbors. Avodah, avodah. Well, uh, that work um, is is sort of, uh, oh, gosh, this slipped in here, another cartoon. If, If you can't read it in the back, it says, you're wrong, I'm not the devil, but I do own your soul for the next eight hours. And, of course, what's wrong about this cartoon? Today it's not eight hours, it's ten hours or eleven hours, and on Saturday and on Sunday as well, isn't it? Well, let's talk a bit about this Faith at Work movement. Um, uh, two different airport scenes here. Uh, one, you can't read the, the, the books necessarily, the titles, but the, on the left, that's from a DFW, from a Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. It's, uh, they've got a, a little chapel there. Uh, and probably 10, 12 years ago, you might have seen the Bible and the Torah, and that's it. Uh, well, today, you see the Koran, you see the Book of Mormon, you see a whole bunch of religious books, as, as it should be, because it's, it's public space. It's not a church and in the sense of a denominational identity. How about on the right? Now, Michael and uh, David will recognize that. That's from Heathrow uh, over in London, Terminal 4, and they have what they call the multi-faith prayer room. So faith at work, yeah, but who's faith? How do we we think about that? You know, traditionally, there were uh, three taboos at work. What what were they? We all know you don't talk about politics, sex, got to get the sex in there, and religion, right? Politics, sex, and religion. Well, that was then. Uh, this is now. People talk about sex all the time at work. They do sex, which isn't too smart. Uh, but there's policies about sexual identity, sexual harassment, sexual orientation. So sex is talked about at work, uh, and probably ap- appropriately so. Um, uh, likewise, politics is no longer a taboo topic. Companies support uh, PACs on both, both sides, both parties. So politics is part of uh, uh, corporate life now. And now religion, what once was taboo, is now coming out of the closet. Another traditional thing is that we lived compartmentalized lives. This is somewhat of a generational play, but if you're the tail end, any retirees here are from the veterans generation, and if you're a baby boomer, we were all taught you compartmentalize your life. Your personal life is your personal life, thank you, but don't bring it to work. At work, we're paying you to do a job, and you come in here with your nose clean and follow the rules, and you'll get along just fine. 
but I don't want to hear any whinging about things going on in your home life. Well, that's changing, isn't it, with generational drivers. The Gen Xers and the millennials who follow along, some of whom are also here in the audience, you, you laugh at that logic. You want to live a holistic, integrated life where whatever value set and view of the world you have in your private life, you don't want to have this false boundary between that and your work life or your social life. You want to be an integrated, holistic person. Well, guess what? For a lot of people, if you believe the studies that 90% of the people uh, believe in some form of God or higher being, and a, and a large percent are average worship goers, well, they don't want to park that anymore at home. They don't want to leave their soul in the parking lot when they go into the office. That's a different world. People now want to live integrated lives, not compartmentalized lives. And whether you're an evangelical Christian, an Orthodox Jew, a, a Jew, a practicing Muslim, or even a New Ager, they want to bring that with them to work. And companies are having to grasp that and figure out what to do with that. So those taboos have changed to a holistic orientation, a blending of the personal with work, and these generational drivers that are deeply, deeply transforming the marketplace. You know, there's some other things. Uh, uh, the corporate world has dealt, uh, in many ways, the corporate world leads the church. It leads the government in having to handle and deal with uh, thorny issues. Sometimes they do it well. Uh, sometimes we would argue that, that uh, it's a cultural decline and not a cultural protection or a cultural renewal. But what was the big emotional hot issue in the 60s that companies were dealing with? Race, Exactly. And enlightened companies, companies that were forward-thinking, and hopefully companies influenced by Christian thought, realized that the, uh, uh, that the legalized racism of this country was sinful, wrong, and time to change. And different companies took different approaches to it. Some resisted it and said, no, we're not going to go there. We don't like that. And other companies said, no, this is the full people of God, and we need to think about how we, prim- how we uh, uh, encourage black people and other minorities to come into our company, succeed, and thrive, and do well. And companies that took that early on are today thriving, successful companies. Uh, do a quick case study. Compare PepsiCo and Coca-Cola. I uh, hope I'm not offending one any in the room. And full disclosure, I'm a personal friend with the former chairman and CEO of Pepsi, and I know a lot of the people and have done work there, so I, maybe I'm biased. But every year, Pepsi wins awards after award after award from various different minority communities. They have to have a virtual love fest because Pepsi gets it that their employees ought to look like their clients and their customers. And they have a great relationship with uh, the various uh, minority communities. Coca-Cola has class action suit year after year for systemic underpayment of blacks, for uh, um, different advancement profiles and so forth. Hmm, gee, I wonder why that was. One, per, one company embraced the change and found constructive ways. And it's not always easy. It's emotional. It's awkward. We don't know how to talk about it. But if you grasp the hard things, that's what leadership is about. Things happen. Well, what was the 70s known for? Any remember there? Gender, yeah, women. Like, oh, well, here's a concept. Let's pay women the same amount as men. Wow, for the same job. And you know what? Let's let them take pretty much any job out there. Well, that was radical thought in its days. Radical thought in its days. But companies, again, that embraced that succeeded. At the time, it was emotional, difficult, and awkward, and there was lots of resistance. But in the end, it ended up being a good thing for companies who did. 80s, I argue, is the family-friendly generation, uh, d- decade of, 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 of dealing with uh, single moms, uh, having flex time, having daycare, recognizing the old configuration of the nuclear mom and dad, like that quaint picture of my parents, who are now divorced, by the way, and meeting the national statistics. Uh, the, the, that quaint little picture isn't the norm anymore. So how do you create a workspace that can accommodate different family needs? And as the younger generations have taught us, they need to balance those. 
The 90s, very controversial, I call the gender orientation, uh, the whole GLBT, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Now that, regardless where you think about this personally and theologically and biblically, the reality is companies have had to come to terms with that and figure out, do they shut down on that or do they say, you two are a child of God, even though I might disagree with and find your choices and lifestyle um, uh, fallen or wrong or good or bad, the reality is they show up to work and how do you think about them? Where we are now is, I argue, worth uh, entering into, as we go into the OOs, it's what I call the faith-friendly era. And notice I'm saying faith-friendly, not faith-based. I'm working on a book on this topic right now that I don't think a corporation, particularly if it's publicly traded or listed, I don't think it should be faith-based. I get a little nervous when the word Christian becomes an adjective and not a noun. I'm not quite sure what a Christian company looks like, or for that matter, a Jewish company. I don't really know. One of my friends, Bill Pollard, the retired chairman of CE, uh, CEO of Service Master Company, the one who helped me, uh, we co-founded this Avada Institute uh, to work with CEOs several years ago. He said, you know, when I die and go to heaven to meet my maker, I don't think I'm going to see a lot of companies in the line. I'm going to see people. Companies don't go to heaven. People go to heaven. But I think a company can be faith-friendly. And by faith-friendly, I mean what? I mean, faith-friendly is... Uh, so, uh, faith-friendly is, is, is welcoming and embracing people of all faith traditions and no faith traditions into the workplace, allowing them to be who they are. A lot of times in the church, we critique the postmodern world for having a, a lack of a grand narrative, a, gra- a lack of an overarching scheme to make sense, and, and we, we return, as we rightly should, to the Christian narrative to give us that. But one of the advantages of the postmodern world, unsettling as it is at times, is it allows everyone at a seat at the table. And people of faith should have a seat at the table at the marketplace, too. And we shouldn't have to be embarrassed or shut down that part of who we are. So I argue companies that are faith-friendly, and there's a lot of data to support this and some of my own research, companies that are faith-friendly will ultimately thrive. Frankly, it'll be a competitive advantage. So whether you do it for utilitarian reasons, because it pays, <laughs> or whether you do it because it's the right thing, either way, it's the way to go. Well, this faith at work movement, it's driven if there's an organizing principle. Uh, I talk about this in my book. It's about a desire to integrate, to integrate the claims of our faith with the demands of our work. It's a full, bona fide social movement. I would argue we're an inning one of a nine-inning game. And I want to also say this movement is largely lay-founded and lay-led. It's people like David and people like others of you who are doing different things outside the official sanctioning of the church. And I hugely applaud and thank you for also your official church leaders, your clergy, for embracing and walking alongside and encouraging you, the laity, to drive this movement. Sometimes I lament that more churches aren't doing what you're doing, uh, but then I wonder, well, maybe it's, maybe it's a good thing that it's lay-founded and lay-led. There's a certain um, necessity about that, and you could let the full entrepreneurial zeal of, uh, of business folks, marketplace people, uh, turn this into something. So what I encourage pastors to do is to acknowledge this theologically, to think and preach and talk about it, to give you some depth, some real theological meat underneath, which is something Catherine has always felt we need. Uh, and then let your people loose. Then let them build and create. And that's, I think, what you're doing. This Faith at Work movement, or FAW as I call it, there are groups around the country. They meet in uh, Starbucks. They meet in diners. They meet at fancy resort locations. They meet in people's homes. And yes, they even meet in the office place sometime. 
what was it called? Crisis in the, the cubicle? Uh, I, I, I misheard that when you said that last night, Tom. I thought you had said Christ in the cubicle. Uh, and maybe that should be the subtext. How do we go from crisis to Christ in the cubicle? There's websites, there's books. It's extraordinary. This is an exploding world of faith at work. I could make a full-time living, and a very handsome one at that, by quitting my work at the university and just uh, being a consultant going on the speaking circuit with issues of faith and work. In fact, I spend about a third of my time uh, traveling and doing just that uh, and working a lot with for-profit corporations, with CEOs, sometimes on a private individual basis, and sometimes their organizations. Initially, I worked for uh, one uh, professional services firm uh, uh, on, uh, uh, to help them with ethics. And the vice chairman took me aside and he said, David, just, you know, I, I know you're a Christian and I know you're into this, but don't do the God stuff here, okay? No, no God stuff. Uh, we're an accounting firm. We don't go there. And I said, okay. Uh, so I was an outside ethics advisor to them because that's my professional discipline now. About two years later, I get a phone call, an urgent phone call on my cell phone, my home phone, and my office phone saying, David, remember I told you not to do the God stuff? We need you to do the God stuff now. <laughs> they had a problem. Something blew up. They have a huge prayer network, 900 people on this prayer network, from the chairman, from the senior partners uh, all the way down to rank-and-file folks. And it's a wonderful thing. They pray for different needs and so forth. Well, they made a mistake one day. Someone inappropriately prayed for someone who wasn't part of the network, mentioned him by name, and also the illness that they were praying for, and that person didn't want that publicly known yet. So whether you look at HIPAA laws, a breach of that, or just poor judgment, uh, it was well-intended, but was clearly a mistake. The general counsel's office said, cease and desist, this is misuse of company assets, and they shut it down. Whoa, then you have 900 people now mad at at the firm. And they asked me to come and help them negotiate that. How did we think through that? Can we find public language to work about these deeply held personal and private beliefs? We're often, they're different. And by the way, their C-suite, their their executive suite, was comprised of a Mormon, a Jew, and a Catholic. Now, isn't that interesting? So I led a, a, ended up being what was called Spirituality in the Workplace Task Force for about nine months, comprised of a a Sikh, a Muslim, um, a Catholic, a lapsed Catholic, a New Ager, an atheist, a couple evangelicals, a couple mainliners. It was extraordinary. And you know the biggest advocate for welcoming faith in the workplace and becoming a faith-friendly company, which was our ultimate recommendation to be faith-friendly and to control the process, put certain parameters into place so that you don't have missteps or miscues. The biggest advocate was the atheist. It was marvelous. Talk about God at work as a verb and a noun. And his view was, he said, um, uh, and I, I crib his language now, he said, you know the, that that. What I like about faith-friendly, he said, is my choice to be an atheist. That's my worldview. That's where I choose to put my trust, just like you choose to put your trust in God however you understand God. And he recognized that faith-friendly also had place for the atheist. So it wasn't religion-friendly, although you could argue that atheism is a religion, but atheists tend not to like when you tell them that. (laughs) Michael can help guide us on that a little bit later. And this movement has a, it's not some monolithic white guys club. Uh, it, it's blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians, Latinos, all levels and types from entry level folks to day laborers to uh, white collar workers, CEOs, and executives. And people are saying, how do I connect the dots? How do I connect what I hear on Sunday if it's even halfway true to what I do on Monday? How do I do that? 
One example, um, in fact, this is the, uh, the Pepsi guy, Steve Reinemann, uh, uh, the just recently retired chairman and CEO of Pepsi. We lead a group just to give you an example of the kinds of things you could do here in, in this city. Uh, uh, it's uh, once a month. We meet in Greenwich. Some of you may know Greenwich as the hedge fund capital of the world. A little scary these days. Um, and we meet uh, once a morning, uh, not in a church basement, not in a church office, because we don't want to come across as churchy, uh, but we meet at the Yacht Club in Greenwich, which is what one does in Greenwich, at the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, once a morning, once a month in the mornings, and it's packed. People want to come, and we start. That's the place we start out with this little liturgical move of holding these two Bibles up there. And many of these men and women are not churched. They used to be, and they're coming back to their faith. And others are deeply invested in their faith, but they're saying, how do I do it? Can I really, with integrity, be a bond salesman or a bond trader? How do I do that? And fill in the blank. Think of your own professions as well. So we bring in a mixture of existing CEOs who are struggling with these questions, and they tell their story, and I interview them. And also, I do teaching moments, usually whatever was in the Wall Street Journal that week, and we then try to find biblical resources to help negotiate those kinds of issues. Oh, here's another cartoon. It says, I don't belong to an organized religion. My religious beliefs are way too disorganized. Doesn't that describe a lot of us? <laughs> well, so this faith, who's noticed? What are the implications, this faith at work movement that I'm talking about, that you're part of? Well, first of all, who's not noticed? Let's do the Catholic thing, the via negativa. What is it not? Who's not noticed? Well, frankly, most churches have not noticed with the exception of Redeemer Press and yourselves. So you all get a gold star and an A plus. Ray Bucknell, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it is sad, actually. And, and why don't most churches, why haven't they figured this out? It's because all the professors like me aren't talking about it in seminaries and divinity schools and religion departments. Uh, there's, frankly, a bit of latent, if not uh, uh, overt, hostility towards people in the marketplace. It's, we could go into the why. It's vestiges of liberation theology and some other theologies uh, that tend to take a prima facie negative view of, of the corporate world. Um, uh, so really it's the education system that's at fault not training our future clergy to think about these questions of what you folks do Monday through Friday and then how, when you're at the, the pulpit, how do, you, how do you talk about that and think about that? The theologians, uh, the, the guild, our guild, the Academy of Religion, there's about uh, 8,000 religion professors that come together once a year to talk about God stuff um, and you would be hard-pressed to find more than two or three papers about the marketplace and if they are, they're essentially theological jihads against how horrible the marketplace is. Now, by the way, I, I'm the first to admit that the marketplace is it's painful, it's brutal, it's tough at times, uh, but so too is all of life. And guess what? That's the human experience. And how can we find the divine or even a spark of the divine in those places? And how do we bring that there? That's where the action is. The religious publishing industry, they don't really understand this world either. Um, they think that faith at work means, well, I don't know if they even know what it means, uh, that, but it's a Sunday-centered theology as opposed to a Monday-centered theology. Well, in contrast, who has noticed? Uh, well, the corporate world, uh, as I said, public and private companies really want to get into this. They're, and, and frankly, they're driven by business need because they're finding people saying they want to think and talk about it, this work. How do you do it? The media is all over it. Uh, probably once or twice uh, 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 every week or so I'm called about an interview on some aspect of this faith at work story. Uh, books galore. And frankly, some of the books aren't the best in the world, but it shows there is an interest. There is a demand. And most of those books aren't uh, written by pointed head geeks like me, but they're written by lay people, business people who are reflecting on their own journey and what did they learn and what did they do well and what did they wish the church might have done. And that's why they're gathering offline by the 
themselves without the church there because they're, they're taking charge of it. And the website, it's amazing. The MBA world, wow, this is astounding. You'd think that the MBA uh, uh, world would be hostile to this proposition. That's where all the research is going on. The, the Management Guild has a group called MSR, Management, Spirituality, and Religion. And they're measuring and studying, obviously from a utilitarian point of view. They're not asking truth claims. That's fine. There's time for that. But they're all over this. The first book review for my book, God at Work, didn't come from Christian Century or Christianity Today. It came from the Harvard, book review, Harvard Business Review. Extraordinary. And they actually liked it, which was really cool. Well, I, I teach a, a class. Um, I may have mentioned this last time, uh, called Business Ethics, Succeeding Without Selling Your Soul. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I just love teaching this course. Mother Teresa is up there just as, a, as an offset. And you might imagine uh, you could look around at those people. You'll recognize their faces. I ask people, we're too big to really chit-chat interactively, but I ask people, what, what's the common thread amongst these people this, uh, on this slide? And it was pointed out to me that most are white males. So I've got a little problem there. But no, they're all people who are publicly self-avowed and very public Christians who drove their companies into the ground through ethical malfeasance. Sunday-Monday gap? You betcha. I was just in North Dakota. You betcha. <laughs> but yeah, amazing. We've got, of course, uh, Bernie Evers uh, from WorldCom, Dennis Grushy from Hell South. Uh, we've got Ken Lay and his, uh, his boys, uh, Jeff Skilling, Andy Fastow, and Lee. Extraordinary. And there's also, uh, this isn't just a Christian problem. Um, uh, Skilling was, was a practicing Jew, went, went to temple regularly. So what happened? Either these business leaders were hypocrites, they didn't really believe what they said at their Sabbath, or they were just lousy business people, they were incompetent. And I don't really believe that either of those are valid options. I think the third option is they compartmentalized their lives. They lived these bifurcated lives where they didn't connect the claims and teachings of what they heard on their Sabbath with the challenges and realities of what they did on Monday. And they let the forces and pressures of this Bible trump the teachings and commitments of the other Bible. So in this course, I challenge students to think about how do we make sure we're not one of them Myself included. How do we make sure? Because I don't think most, maybe Jeff Skilling, but I don't think most people woke up, you know, saying, uh, uh, I'm going to commit a billion-dollar fraud today. I mean, it was a slippery slope. But how did they get there? What happened? And what you're doing this church and what Catherine is doing, that's how you help uh, 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 enculturate people and reinforce and encourage people not to to make those, those decisions where you the next day go, how on earth did I do that? What was I thinking? It's extraordinary. How can you succeed, however we define success, without selling your soul? Uh, and you know what? It's an encouraging thing. Students are just, they, they pile into this course. They love it. And it's not because I'm a great teacher. They love the subject. They at last are being able to talk about something they know is really important, and they want to think and talk about this. And they've got very good, hard questions, I can assure you. Uh, the media is all over this, uh, and they're not laughing. Business Week had a cover story on religion in the workplace. Fortune magazine, the, 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 you know, the Bible of the business world, the other Bible, it had a story on it. And Mark Gunther, uh, a very good friend, is uh, Jewish as it happens. Uh, uh, we got to know each other after the interview for this. Um, he told me later uh, that this was the best-selling issue in the history of, of Fortune magazine as measured by newsstand sales. And I said, what was the reaction, like the emails to the editor? And he said, 99.9% positive. And only about a small percentage saying, what on earth are you doing? This doesn't belong here. Most people are writing saying, thank God you're finally writing about what matters to me. Fascinating. 
the conference board, a big research organization, they're doing research on this. I'm working with them on a project. Um, Forbes magazine had an article on godly work. The New York Times, what would Jesus say about Enron? A lot, I suppose. Uh, this uh, uh, executive action uh, report, the conference board, we did a project on uh, what's it mean to be a faith-friendly com- co- uh, company, this, this topic we were just talking about. Even Ladies Home Journal has had a story on faith in the workplace, um, and uh, USA Today has had a story on faith in the workplace. All these people are asking about it. Books, they're all over. You can buy any of these books through um, uh, uh, Amazon, and many of them sell like hotcakes. Uh, and the titles are indicative. Loving Monday, God is my CEO, following God's principles in a bottom line world. may sound a bit jarring, maybe even a bit tacky, but there's something there. They're, they're, they're tapping into something. Leading with soul, faith and fortune, spirit at work, being God's partner. It was written by a rabbi, how to find the hidden link between spirituality and your work. By the way, he notes that God is the senior partner, we are the junior partner, just to get that thing straight. So... Uh, here are some other books, um, The Soul of the Firm, Managing as If Faith Mattered. What a great title, Managing as If Faith Mattered, based on Catholic social teachings. Uh, what Queen Esther Knew About Management. <laughs> wow, yeah, that'll preach. It does, actually. Uh, di- didn't uh, Tim Keller do something on Esther? Yeah, a great sermon. You gave me a copy of that on uh, uh, how perhaps you were created for such a time as this. In your workplace, in your workplace. And on they go, joy at work, extraordinary. Um, and it's not just Christians who are in this. Uh, uh, there's, there's Buddhist stuff, there's New Age stuff, uh, Deepak Chopra and all those guys. Everyone's out there. Everyone's out there flogging this. It's important space for the church to be in. Uh, Laura Nash, I see you've got her book out there. She's a friend. That's a great book too. Uh, church on Sunday, Work on Monday is the title. Uh, and in that she uses the phrase, which I love. She said, the church has abdicated this space of faith and work to the New Agers and everybody else. We've abdicated that. Well, you're taken aback. You're standing up to your responsibility, and I really applaud you for that. Uh, academic books are coming out, so not just sort of popular uh, press kind of books, academic books. Um, the one on the right is one of my favorites. It's impossible to read. It's very turgid, but it's written by a Nobel Prize winning economist, economist, who's also a secular Jew, and he says the key to a, a healthy and fair life for uh, societies is access to and distribution of spiritual assets. Not material assets, but spiritual assets. He's out at the University of Chicago. Amazing, amazing. Well, we would know that. That wouldn't surprise us as a Christian, but it's sometimes nice to have something validated by discernible reason and other scientific disciplines that we might know through uh, revealed wisdom. Here's some other texts all about ethics, spirituality, my own little contribution on the right. Amazing. And these books are being well-regarded in the academy. They're not being sort of poo-pooed or, or laughed off as someone's fringe interest. Oh, here we go. If you can't read the back, it says, and now if I may, I'd like to put you on hold for a moment while I have a few words with mammon. So, you all know what mammon means, don't you? Right, you can't serve God and mammon. little word uh, lesson for you. The, the, it's an Aramaic word. Actually, a couple of Aramaic words pop in the Bible in the New Testament. It's Aramaic. And it's translated, we usually translate it to mean wealth or money. But the root word actually means the semantic domain is that in which you place your trust that in which you place your trust. That's what Jesus is asking. So who do you place your trust in? Me? The cross? Or do you place your trust in your 401k? That's what that question's about. 
So who has noticed? We've talked about this. Companies, how do they respond? There's four different ways that companies think about it. Some are in denial that people care about the faith at work movement and faith questions. Uh, they, they hide their heads in the sand and pretend uh, that nothing's going on. The opposite approach to that isn't the denial approach. It's what I call the clampdown. They know full well that people want to have a Bible study in the cafeteria at lunch, and they say, you ain't going to do that here. No, thank you. That's the problem of all, the source of all the world's worlds and problems, uh, wars and problems. That's the last thing we need in our company. So opposite reactions, either you ignore it, pretend it's not happening, this desire that train is going through town, you ignore it, or you clamp down and shut it down. The third, what most companies do is, hey, if it ain't broke, you know, let's just not go there. It's too awkward. We don't know how to talk about it. Let's leave it alone. That's what most companies do. They just let it benignly trundle along, like the one accounting company I just told you about. And I argue that when something is happening, it's better to show leadership and engage it. And I propose this model of being faith-friendly. Now, there might be other better language or better models, but to engage it, step up to it, wrestle with it, make mistakes, try. That's where the action is. That's what good leaders do. There's affinity groups, by the way. You may have them in your own companies, particularly if you work for a big company. You'll have uh, uh, probably an African-American group. There might be an Asian group. There might be a women's group. There might be a GLBT group, and on they go. Some companies are saying, gee, why can't we have religious affinity groups or religious employee networks? Now, there's pluses and minuses to that, and there's good ways to do that and bad ways to do that. But these are the kind of questions going on in big companies. There's other ways that people get into faith at work. Some do it through uh, the wellness movement. Some do it through diversity and inclusion. Some do it through ethics. But it's happening. It's happening. Well, how do people do this? And this is meant to sort of tee up the rest of our, our session here. Uh, in my research, I was trying to figure out, well, these all these faith at work groups that are, that are out there, like, how do I study them? How do I make sense of them? And there are thousands, literally thousands and thousands of them around the country. Some are uh, just uh, four or five people meeting over for a cup of coffee, and others have uh, extensive budgets, parachurch ministries and other nonprofits that may have multi-million dollar budgets with staff all around the world. Well, how do I make sense of these? How can we, is there any theme or, well, the organizing theme, the driver is everyone wants to integrate faith and work, connect Sunday and Monday, overcome those Sunday and Monday gap. But then I wonder, are they all, is it conservatives versus liberals? Is it hierarchy CEOs versus entry level? And, and I conclude, no, th those aren't really helpful ways to think about this. Oh, here we go. I hope I don't offend anyone with this cartoon. If you, if you can't read it in the back, and I'll probably never be invited back after this cartoon, before we discuss destroying the competition, screwing our customers, and laughing all the way to the bank, let's begin this meeting with a prayer. Well, why do I put that up? Um, it's a bit edgy, I apologize, but... You know, the biggest critique I find from people, and I don't know what Michael would say about this, but the biggest critique I find from people of the Christian proposition, of the Christian worldview, isn't usually flaws in the logic or flaws in the doctrine or flaws in the reasonableness of the Christian proposition. Usually it's because guys like me and some of you were hypocrites. And we say one thing and we turn around and do that sort of stuff. So someone who might be nipping at the heels of faith and have some spiritual curiosity sees someone who's a hypocrite and they say, I don't want that brand of religion, thank you. So I want to put this up to temper us with our enthusiasm, with my enthusiasm at least about faith and work in your churches, that we need to be really careful about the charge of hypocrisy. Hip hip hypocrisy. It's, a, it's sadly a real problem. Well, here's the ways I think about this. There's four ways to think about this movement. I'm simple, so I have them all begin with an E. 
The letter E is a mnemonic device. The first, and perhaps the obvious one that most people think, well, being a person of faith at work, it's about evangelism. And the woman in the tape, Marv, the video marvelously said that. Well, it's, it's about using the work as a mission field. And that was one of her early conceptions of it, that I think about work as a mission field, where I introduce people to the love and the saving grace of Jesus the Christ. Well, and that's true to an extent. There's biblical warrant for that. There's theological warrant for that. But that's not all faith at work is about. The second area that if you look at a full, healthy, mature Christian life, or as uh, John Stott would say, BBC Christianity. Ever heard of BBC Christianity? Balanced Biblical Christianity. (laughs) Well, BBC Christianity has another attribute. It's also ethics. Think particularly of uh, the Old Testament, the great prophetic voices. Think particularly, yes, believe it or not, of Leviticus, the holiness code, which teaches you fair weights and measures and scales and how to operate in the marketplace and what to do if someone, yes, screws you or shafts you or takes advantage of you in a transaction or you, someone else. How do you make recompense? How do you make someone square? How do you make someone holy and return back when you've made a mistake? So ethics, doing the right thing, questions of social justice, questions of treating your people well with dignity and respect, and your customers and your clients and your other stakeholders and the communities in which you do work. That's part of faith at work. The third E that I start with or mention is enrichment. What I mean by enrichment, this is sort of maybe an odd one, but this is sort of the interior life of the Christian. This is uh, how do I uh, find a bomb in Gilead? Let's face it, some of you work for marvelous companies where you're happy and you may even look forward to going to work. But some of you, and a lot of you, will probably, your work is at best neutral and maybe even a bit of a burden in your life, and your stomach tightens up when you walk into the office. Well, faith at work for some people, it's about finding succor. It's about finding spiritual nurture and guidance and healing. When your boss is toxic, when your coworkers steal credit for your work, when you get laid off through no fault of your own because the jobs are now going off to Bangalore, work hurts. And faith at work then is a place of healing and nurture that, yes, God has claims he's even with us then. So that's faith at work for many people. It's also the person who might get up a half hour early before the rest of the family and do a devotional, do a prayer. It's the person who, before going into a really key meeting with their boss or a client or a coworker, where something awkward is going to be talked about and painful and confrontational, where they say a prayer for wisdom, for grace, for the right language, to be honest, to speak the truth in love, as Paul would say, but to not be vindictive or hurtful or mean. In fact, one woman, uh, uh, she's a CFO at at a publicly traded company, and and I took them through an exercise to figure out what type they were in this sort of like the Myers-Briggs kind of thing. And and she said, you know, I thought at first that I was an ethics person because she was all about as you might imagine a, a, a CFO would be, about a clear sense of right and wrong and booking things properly. Um, but she said, I realized that that's really my secondary attribute. My primary is enrichment category. That she said, days when I don't do my morning devotional, when I don't say a morning prayer and do something, I'm, I'm a little bit off kilter on those days. And I can't have that high, that courage to be ethical if I haven't had that private space in my own first. And the final way... I call it experience. How do you experience your work? Do you experience your work as just a job, just to pay the rent, and then when you're out of work is when you live your full Christian life? Or is your work itself, can it give you meaning and purpose? Do you experience your work as a calling, as a vocation, as a vocatio, where both what you do and how you do it matters to God? As the title of the other book out there said, your work matters to God. 
For many of us, it's a matter of reframing our work to view it as a calling. Callings don't have to be glamorous and sexy or high end of the pyramid. You can have a calling as a, uh, uh, as a receptionist, as a clerk. You can have a calling as a homemaker, changing diapers. Luther, gosh, he was great. He talked about the scullery maid, the prayers of a scullery maid on her knees are more holy than a monk in an abbey. Wow. And he talks about changing diapers as a holy practice. So our work matters to God. And if we, if we tilt the lens of not so much what we do, although that's important, but how we do it, we can find it could be an avodah. It could be a way to honor and serve God, honor God and serve uh, neighbor. These four different types, um, sort of like Myers-Briggs, I would argue we're all a little bit pre-wired one way or the other based on our, our parents, the church we grew up in, the culture. Uh, you know, let's play out a stereotype. If, if, you're, in, if you're in Dallas, Texas, guess which quadrant they're all going to be in? Evangelism, right? If you're in the godforsaken Northeast, what do we talk about? We don't know how to spell evangelism, but we're all over ethics, baby. So, you know, there's, there's these, these cultural things. But I would argue that the balanced Christian life, the mature Christian life, really shouldn't be locked in one space. We might have a, a natural inclination or, frankly, um, a shortcoming in one of those areas, but we should be bold enough to walk through all those. A couple of my friends have said, well, Miller, this is helpful, but it's a little too rigid for me. Life isn't quite so black and white. And so I'm coming to think of the integration box, really, as integration spheres. And we all should be like that Venn diagram where we're in that middle space that overlaps. uh, That that ought to be, whoops, back up here. Uh, That ought to be what we're looking for, to be in that middle space. Now, I was kidding around at my own expense earlier, that, uh, that I grew up in a place where you, you, you didn't evangelize. So, I'll, public disclosure, I've had to learn what does it mean to appropriately evangelize. That wasn't my natural first voice. And as God often in his sense of humor, I find that so much of my life is all about being in the secular world and dealing with people who are not of faith. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> but I thought ethics or, or, or uh, experience would have been my two natural spaces uh, of uh, work as a calling, that I view my work now, and I viewed my old work as a banker, as an executive, as a calling. So I urge you to think about this, and I think that's sort of the backdrop of, of our session. I talk a bit about it in my book, and in our different sessions, we'll, we'll, we'll play through these different things, um, and hopefully they will be uh, helpful to you. And in a way, this brings us back to our title of this session, which, if I recall, is If I Could Only Be in Full-Time Ministry. You know, if I had a, a, a dollar for every time, oh, heck, even a quarter for every time someone says that phrase, I could take you to Nabil Haddad's restaurant uh, at the Plaza 2 and buy you many, many, many good meals and expensive ones with the best bottle of wine because I get asked that question a lot. If I could only be in full-time ministry. Now, what's wrong with that sentence? We are. Exactly. Exactly. What I'll some, if I know the person a little bit, um, so I don't come across as totally rude, I'll, I'll often say when they ask that, I'll say, well, well, you mind if I ask you a question? I'll say, no. And I say, well, are, are you baptized? And they'll say, well, yeah. I say, well, join the club, baby. You're in full-time ministry. Now, as a Reformed theologian and coming out of that tradition, I, I have sort of two senses of calling once you're baptized. First is a general call to follow Christ, and the other is the particular calling we're given in our daily lives. And I hadn't planned to go into this, but I'll do one sidebar here. That calling is usually referenced in the singular, the doctrine of vocation, as if we have a vocation, a calling in the singular. And one of the contributions I'm trying to make is to push at that, that theology, to say we have callings plural. 
And many times we have multiple concurrent callings. We have a calling to be a spouse. We have a calling to be an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent. We have a calling to be a business person. We have a calling to be a volunteer. We have lots of callings. Some are for short seasons of our life that come and go, and others, are they define us for our whole life. So think of callings in this wonderful, flexible, and ever-growing way that God will place different callings on you at different stages of your life, some of which you may not really welcome. Remember callings in the Old Testament, they tend not to be real popular assignments. Remember Moses being told that he had to go back to Pharaoh, let my people go, and all that? Remember Moses was a convicted felon on the run. Not really what he wanted to do. So some of you may have tough callings and some of you may have beautiful callings. So I leave you with that. And, uh, oh, one more cartoon. <laughs> you drive yourself too hard. You really must learn to take time to stop and smell the prophets. And I'm going to do another version of that, which will be P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S. Uh, so, uh, oh, gosh, I, I have another one here. This is fun. And wonderful sermon, Tom. Thanks for not mentioning me by name. So with that, with that I thank you, and I look forward to a great day. Godspeed. <laughs>